This episode of Ask Science Mike offers frank discussions of mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Put the kids to bed. It's time for Science Mike After Dark. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Monogamy, marijuana, and masturbation. Oh my, it's the band questions edition of Ask Science Mike. You guys have given me a lot of questions that you obviously aren't comfortable asking at church and discussing in your local communities. Things about uh, modern sexual ethics. Can Christians smoke weed? All kind of crazy stuff. We're going to dive in. This is the show where we answer tough questions. Let's get it started. Our first question this week, uh, well, it came from a lot of people. Uh, this is an amalgam of uh, several dozen questions I got uh, in the last couple of weeks. And they basically come down to two categories. One, what does marijuana do to the brain? Or what is the neurological impact of weed? Was one specific wording. And then the other sort of category of question was, how do you feel about smoking weed as a Christian? These sorts of hot topic questions are kind of the ones I'm most afraid to answer because uh, the science compels me to positions that really aren't necessarily aligned either with their traditional uh, Christian way of viewing things or, you know, kind of a modern progressivist way of looking at things. Science uh, isn't terribly concerned about our preconceived notions and simply gives us data. So before I tell you what I think about weed, let's talk about what I know about weed, okay? First point, big one, important, inhaling smoke is bad for you, period. Inhaling smoke is bad for you. This is true of all kinds of smoke. Cigarette smoke, everyone knows, is really terrible for you. But guess what? Marijuana smoke is also bad for you. And before anyone listening who doesn't smoke marijuana or cigarettes gets too uh, proud of themselves, wood smoke is really bad for you. Sitting around a fire and uh, inhaling a lot of wood smoke is similarly bad for the lungs as these drugs. Don't inhale smoke. It's bad for you. Uh, You know, when you inhale smoke, you're going to have damage to your cilia, the little uh, hair-like structures that line the throat and the lungs and kind of uh, clean the air and filter the air that you breathe. It's going to irritate the lining of your lungs and uh, the actual sacs that help you to pull oxygen out of the air and, and release carbon dioxide from your bloodstream. And not only that, in smoke, especially in cigarette and marijuana smoke, there are carcinogens, chemicals which dramatically increase your propensity to have lung cancer. So I don't like lung cancer. I'm not going to inhale smoke. But there are other ways to take marijuana. Uh, There are many popular edible forms. People bake cannabis into products, or you can get it as like little gummies. Uh, There's all kinds of ways to to ingest marijuana without smoking it. Similar today, there are ways to ingest tobacco products or nicotine without smoking it. So this is important. When you are not smoking marijuana, or even when you are, We don't have as much data about marijuana as cigarettes. It hasn't been studied as much. We have less to go on scientifically. 
We do know that frequent marijuana use can lower testosterone in men, and it can uh, also lower sperm production. Uh, So it can be linked to decreased libido and uh, decreased fertility for men. We also know that uh, marijuana can be really hard on the heart. Your uh, resting pulse rate can as much as double when you're high. And because of that, there is an association or a correlation between marijuana use and heart attack. It's not a healthy form of of pulse elevation. Uh, We also know that when we look at the actual brain, that THC, which is the, the primary drug component of marijuana, is a very potent psychoactive. And over the last 30 to 40 years, marijuana plants have been cultivated and, and have much more punch to them. They've gone from 3 to 4% THC to like 7 uh, That's a it's a pretty big jump. Now, when you look at a brain that has THC in it, uh, when someone's ingested marijuana, uh, it binds to your cannabinoid receptors. Uh, you know, so you have these uh, receptors on the ends of your neurons uh, that let chemical information pass from neuron to neuron. That's uh, a lot of things in the brain are chemical and not just electrical. And marijuana works with those receptors to cause its effects. Now, the ones uh, that most of your cannabinoid receptors are like in your hippocampus, in your basal ganglia, and your cerebellum. And so when you get this binding in those receptors, it's going to affect your short-term memory. It's going to impair it. It's going to impair your ability to do basic problem-solving. You're going to have more difficulty learning during that time. Uh, You're going to have trouble with basic hand-eye coordination because of the binding in the cerebellum. And uh, anyone who has ingested marijuana uh, frequently is probably also aware that you're going to have an increase in appetite because a certain type of neuron in your hypothalamus is going to have a, a, a dopamine surge and it's going to make you think you're hungry. And it's going to suppress your ability to feel full, so you're going to eat a lot. Uh, none of those things are showstoppers. A lot of people enjoy the feeling they have of, of, of lightness, of levity, of increased color perception because of dilated pupils, all those sorts of things. But uh, that same binding in time can cause paranoia, it can cause fear, uh, and so there can be negative feelings associated with being high. So scientifically, what's my call? Well, I think there's enough health concerns that recreational use of marijuana is probably unwise. Although medical usage could be different, there have been trials that have shown marijuana to be therapeutic in a medical sense. Um, So in my own life, I'm probably going to side on not using marijuana. Um, if, If I was prescribed by a doctor, I would totally use marijuana, and I think that's good science. Now, if we talk about the legality... Uh, well, prohibition is a pretty terrible way to control human behavior. Uh, it just it doesn't work. When we just prohibit things, um, we kind of fetishize them. They become more interesting. They become taboo. We encourage uh, black market trade around them. Um, so I think, you know, if we're talking about controlling marijuana consumption in society, keeping it healthy and helpful, education and regulation are probably more powerful tools. And I think there's a good data case to make there. Now, what about, what about in faith? Can Christians smoke weed? Well, absolutely. I know many Christians who smoke weed. They are Christians. They believe in Jesus. They believe in the resurrection. And they smoke weed. Um, but I also know lots of other Christians who are really, really, really against smoking marijuana. What do I think? Well, I think Christianity 
as a list of do's and don'ts isn't really interesting or helpful. I don't think the following Christ is coming up with a list of things you should do and a list of things you shouldn't do, but rather an awareness of your actions and how they affect others and how they affect yourself. There's this idea in Judaism of shalom, of peace, that God created the world in shalom and that the fall of man uh, was us disturbing that shalom. And so when I look at my actions, I ask myself, am I contributing to shalom or am I diminishing shalom? That means I'm not very likely to judge you if you smoke weed. <laughs> uh, I'm going to offer you a lot of grace if that's a, if something you do and you feel convictions about and you feel good about. On the other hand, it means I'm probably not going to because I don't feel like it's contributing to greater shalom in my life or the life of those around me. And uh, if there's any listeners left on the program after that <laughs> answer that uh, probably no one agrees with, let's talk about sex. Okay, our next question came in via the email inbox. There's lots of talk about when you give yourself to someone sexually, whether you're committed to them or not, you, as the typical phrase goes, give a piece of yourself away. Is there any science or brain activity that would speak to that? Absolutely. There's lots of science and brain activity that would speak to that idea. Let's talk literally for a second. You give some of yourself away during sex or you keep a part of the other person traditionally. There's an actual exchange of DNA in the form of sperm. <laughs> that is uh, the template upon which you are made. That is the blueprint that led to you. And that goes with another person and creates new life. I can't think of any more profound way than, quote, giving yourself away than um, having a baby. <laughs> Uh, but that's not all. You can also um, give yourself away pathogenically. There's 10 non-human cells for every human cell in your body. You've got a lot of bacteria, bacteriophages, viruses. There's a rich and diverse ecology in your body. And you have an immune system whose job is to keep things out that don't belong. And your immune system looks at um, all kinds of cues and uh, proteins and the coatings of different cells to figure out who belongs and who doesn't. And in order for sex to happen, some stuff that doesn't belong has to be transferred. So there's kind of a truce with the immune system, a ceasefire of two different organisms in order for sex to happen. And because of that, there's a whole category of pathogens that specialize in spreading via sexual contact. Uh, and you can even give a piece of yourself away in the form of a sexually transmitted disease or infection while wearing a condom, HPV, for example, is more than happy to spread via skin-to-skin -skin contact in the genitals. Um, and uh, even more frightening, it can hang out on men's testicles without them ever exhibiting symptoms. Uh, but in women, it can cause cervical cancer and all kinds of difficult things. And it's important to note, because of that, there is no such thing as safe sex, only safer sex. Of course, sex with a condom is very much preferred to the alternative if you're going to have more than one sexual partner. It reduces the risk of all the really serious stuff dramatically. 
Um, but HPV, you know, that's serious too. There are there are vaccines, but there, there's there's plenty of there are plenty of bugs that can transmit even when you're wearing a condom. Uh, and I wanted to kind of include that as a disclaimer, not to shame people. We're going to talk a little bit more about premarital sex and those topics later in the show. Um, but it, those are important scientific truths. Now, let's talk about our brains and sex. When we have sex, men's brains and women's brains are pretty similar. Uh, in both, your lateral orbitofrontal cortex shuts down during an orgasm. That's the part of your brain uh, that weighs the consequences of actions. That's why you feel so worry-free as you climax, uh, because the part of your brain that, that worries turns off. <laughs> um, it's a good feeling, such a good feeling, in fact, that uh, the brain of someone having an orgasm is very, very similar to the brain of someone taking heroin. You're talking about that big a high. Uh, I've never taken heroin, but I have had an orgasm. Um, and if heroin's anything like that, maybe that's why so many people get hooked on it. Now, those are things that sort of calm down. Uh, other things fire up. Your amygdala really cranks up during sex. That is in charge of your emotions, especially fear and anger, but pretty much any any very intense emotion is going to have uh, the amygdala active. Um, let's see, your pituitary gland is going to be active, uh, and that's going to give you endorphins, and it's going to decrease your pain levels, and it's going to increase your feelings of trust and bonding. You're going to get a lot, a lot of dopamine release during sex, um, which is going to help you feel satisfied, help you feel elated. Let's see, your anterior insula, which kind of uh, helps you be aware of your body's state, is going to become very active. And even, interestingly enough, your cerebellum is going to get active. That controls all your muscle function. And sex is not just in the brain. It's an intricate interaction between the brain and the body, there's multiple nerve groups involved in order for you to experience sexual stimulation. Um, and then the actual sensation of sex is a combination, right? There's there's actual muscle movements, there's valves, there's all sorts of things downstairs, communicating with upstairs. And your hippocampus, the part of your brain that manages memories, is going to be active. You're going to think of sights and sounds and feelings and past sexual experiences and and how you know this person. And I think I mentioned that you'll also have an oxytocin surge. That's the cuddle hormone. Uh, it makes you feel close to people and, and the need to feel physically close. And because of that intense activity leading towards orgasm, you're going to feel bonded to this person. Uh, neurons that fire together wire together. And a lot of the brain is doing some very intense activity during sex. Now, women's brains have a couple of different things happening than men's brains during sexual activity. One, curiously, the section of the brain typically associated with pain is activated. And it's not in men's brains. Also, uh, the part of the brainstem that's responsible for uh, flight or flight can become active in women. Um and there's also a, a decrease in the activity of the amygdala and the hippocampus uh, over time compared to a relative increase in men, which is where we deal with feel and fear and anxiety, which is why many people think that it's so important for women to feel safe in order to enjoy sex. So scientifically, yeah, there's a lot of bonding. There's a physical transaction. There's an actual part of your DNA is left with the other person. 
there's a tremendous exchange of, of fluids and potentially of, of infection. Married couples can even tell you, uh, even in monogamy, you can certainly pass traditional infections like the common cold back and forth with sexual activity. So you're leaving a piece of your ecology there. But this idea of giving a piece of your soul away, which I think is what the religious notion is, is coming at, um, then has some merit because you are deeply bonding with someone you have sex with. You are having some of the most intense experiences that human beings are capable of with another human, and that's going to leave a mark neurologically, good and bad. Uh, if you have traumatic sexual experiences, those are going to be deeply traumatic experiences. If you have positive sexual experiences, those are going to be more positive than other positive events in your life. That's one of the reasons we are so fascinated with and obsessed with sex. It's a powerful form of connection. And I think both science and faith would say, use it with care. Okay, another question from the email box. Hey, Science Mike, I would love for you to talk about masturbation and monogamy. I'm at the time of writing this, listening to your You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes episode, and the thing you said about testicle size concerning chimps and apes stuck with me. Science seems to say that sex with lots of people is better, or what we were designed for, and that there's nothing wrong about masturbation, keeping in mind that I haven't researched this yet. But what the church has told me seems the opposite. What do you believe on this subject where science and faith meet? Okay, if you haven't heard, I was a guest on Pete Holmes' You Made It Weird podcast. It's a couple of hours long. Uh, a lot of people enjoyed the episode, myself included, mainly because Pete's a fascinating guy to talk to. Uh, you can find that on the internet. I'll probably put up a note in the show notes online if you'd like to hear that episode. If you haven't already, I'm guessing a lot of you already have, though. And I did talk about, uh, we were talking about sex on that show and there's this interesting biological idea that in primates, testicle size is linked to promiscuity. For example, gorillas are very large primates. They're apes, but they have very small testicles. And gorilla uh, sexual relationships are very stable. As long as a male is dominant, he's going to have his group of females. And he doesn't have to compete with anyone in order to fertilize eggs, in order to have his babies. Chimpanzees, on the other hand, are relatively small primates compared to apes or humans, um, but they have really large testicles because they have a lot of sexual partners. Uh, rape is a, a big part of chimp society, unfortunately, and so you see this correlation consistently across primates between uh, promiscuity and testicle size. Now, when you look at human beings, we're right about halfway between apes and chimps. That means... We are neither inherently monogamous nor inherently wildly promiscuous. So a uh, little bit, I think, uh, got lost in translation there in your question. Science does not say that sex with lots of people is better, only that this one way of looking at human sexual propensity indicates that we're probably neither naturally completely monogamous nor naturally wildly promiscuous. And of course... You're talking about a species level. Individuals within the species will have different propensities. I think monogamy is a great strategy. I'm in a married relationship with a woman who I love. We are exclusive sexual partners, and we love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. 
But as societal trends, people are getting married later and people are cohabitating very frequently. They're having a committed relationship where it's not a traditional marriage, but they're sexually active. In fact, a lot of kids today are born by parents who uh, live together but are not married. I don't really have a, a, a deep, passionate perspective on that topic. I think if you look at biblical marriage, uh, that was a different thing than marriage today. Our marriages today are based on this romantic notion of mutual attraction. And marriage in biblical times was largely a business transaction. It was to protect property. I don't know that a lot of those sexual norms in Scripture, frankly, are symptomatic of our times. However, I think some ideas in Scripture are more important than ever. The importance of commitment, of fidelity, of honoring your partner. Those things are important. So, you know, we talked about shalom in the last answer. The shalom I see in relationships, commitment matters. It's easier, you know, if you're going to have kids, that's certainly easier to do together. And for all the concern people have about divorce, divorce rates are actually dropping. Uh, They really surged in the 60s and a bit in the 70s, but have been dropping ever since as people have adapted to a more egalitarian society. Our children are growing up in environments where they're ready to both work, potentially, or, or to make their own decisions about who has what roles in the home. So um, I don't think more people is better scientifically. I understand a lot of people have many sexual partners. I don't judge them for that. But I think in my life, I am closer to creating shalom by honoring a monogamous sexual relationship. Now, masturbation, I have no problem with. (laughs) I'm suspecting I got all these masturbation questions from both men and women, by the way, in the email box. And I suspect a lot of those are from younger listeners. You're in your 20s or teens or whatever. There's a, a pretty fantastic thing as you age where your libido is not quite as tyrannical as it used to be. <laughs> and uh, it's easier to not obsess about sex. We'll talk a bit more about that in the next question. But yeah, no, I, I think we make too big a deal about masturbation in the church. And even if you look at it biblically, um, the sin of Onan was not that he masturbated. The sin of Onan was that he spilled his seed and didn't fulfill a covenant obligation. Uh, the Bible doesn't actually come down very hard on masturbation or, or even discuss it in great detail. I think that's dangerous a bit, the way the church approaches masturbation, because we create such a shame culture around it uh, that we train boys that sex is dirty and needs you know they need to masturbate quickly before anyone realizes what's happening. And uh, they're training themselves for poor sexual performance later. And we're also shaming girls to the point that women are much less able to achieve orgasm in America than men. And that is largely a function of a shame culture around sexuality. I believe deeply that sex and sexuality are gifts from God and nothing to be ashamed of. Hey, Mike, I'm going to try to keep this as brief and vague as possible. I've given you a little backstory and emails and things like that, so uh, this isn't exactly something I want to tell every detail of on the podcast, but this is a question I'd really love to hear have answered, and I think a lot of people could probably benefit from it. But I grew up in a very uh, conservative, fundamentalist Christian home, 
in a very fundamentalist church in a community that was very, you know, anti-evolution, anti-gay, that sort of thing. Uh, you don't drink, you don't curse, all that stuff. And I've been put more and more at odds, I think, in, uh, with the people around me, the more that in the back of my mind, as I grow older and as I read more, uh, that a lot of these things just, I just can't buy into them anymore. And I'm so involved in the ministry here. My parents are pastors at my home church. You know, I lead worship at my church and I work at the church. I just can't imagine uh, the kind of fallout there could be if I was truthful about all of the beliefs that I have instead of just staying silent, you know, at a lot of uh, at a lot of meetings and in a lot of services, I've had to just bite my tongue and just disagree in silence. Well, as you know, uh, gay marriage just recently became legal in Alabama. And what's so funny is I, I know deep down that that makes me very happy. But when my friend first told me about it, I didn't really react with any positivity because I wasn't sure how he was going to react. And the next thing I know, this song comes on Spotify, I guess, on Shuffle in the car. And I felt like tears swelling up in my eyes and, and I just felt this joy. This song was playing and it just hit so close to home. Like finally these people are able to experience marriage and uh, it was very emotional. And ever since then I've been thinking, how can I be dishonest with these people that really do love me so much? How can I lie to them day in and day out and pretend I believe these things that I don't and like I said, I'm still a Christian. I'm still very much, you know, in love with Jesus and all that. But I just can't buy into a literal Genesis. And I can't buy into the idea of, of gay people, for some reason, being these evil beings. And I guess my question is, uh, you being someone who's who's walked through some of those things, uh, being at odds with, with people you love and respect, and maybe them not taking your beliefs so well... Uh, I wanted to know if there was any advice you could give me on that topic. And also, uh, what do you think the healthiest way to leave a faith community is without, you know, severing ties with people you're close with? And I, I just kind of have been running over those details in my head, and I, I thought maybe you could help. Thanks, Mike. It's interesting to me that the litmus test of our church today is marriage equality. It's become the most divisive issue of all. And it's forcing decisions and conversations and changes in local churches that have been brewing for a long time. The first thing I want to tell you is you are not alone. There are a lot of people who go to church every Sunday and they say things like, I can't buy into the things that I once believed. And I'm afraid of what would happen if I was honest and I can't pretend anymore. And I know people say that because they email me and they call me and they do that because I've been through it. <laughs> I left my church and it's because as I rediscovered God after atheism, my approach to faith changed. And the first thing, the first shot, the first earthquake in my congregation was when I wrote a blog post about gay marriage. It was called It's Not About Chicken, and it was uh, on Chick-fil-A Day when everyone was going out to show their support for Chick-fil-A. And that grieved me because I had so many 
gay friends who I loved, and I had been puzzling through the scriptures on this topic. And uh, I wrote a blog about it. And and in that blog, I said I was no longer sure it was a sin to be gay. And that caused quite an uproar from a Southern Baptist deacon. (laughs) And I felt so much freedom after I wrote it and so much pain because I knew how much pressure and stress I was putting on the people that I loved. And then I started to write about science and Genesis, and that caused more controversy in my church than the marriage equality article. It wasn't even close. And suddenly I was like the constant point of discussion in my community. People would literally stop talking as I walked by. (laughs) I know what you're talking about. So do I have advice on how to live when you're at odds with your community? Absolutely do not live at odds with your community. You cannot remain in a spiritual community where you believe opposite things about justice or ethics or sin. That doesn't mean your church is wrong or bad. It just means God is leading you somewhere else, and that's okay. I stayed at my church too long, and because I did that, I hurt people. I stayed at my church too long, and it hurt people. Here's the thing. I'm not the great enlightened one (laughs) at all. I'm no better than anyone who goes to that church. I'm still friends with a lot of them. But even though I'm now open and affirming and I accept the right of gay Americans to marry a person of their choosing, and even though I don't believe it's a sin to be gay whatsoever, I'm still growing and changing and learning. In this very podcast, I answered questions about sex and sexuality, and every example I used was about boys and girls. Because the way I understand sex is through a heterosexual lens, which means I often speak in a way that is heteronormative. So even though I love my gay brothers and sisters, some of the things I say makes them feel different because I didn't say anything about how boys are attracted to boys or girls are attracted to girls because I don't know what that's like. We never arrive. It means in the church it's essential to treat people with grace, and hopefully they will offer us the same courtesy. Hopefully my gay listeners, of which I have many, understand my heart for them even when I misspeak. And you have to do that to the people at your church. You have to offer them grace. It's not your mission to change them. It's not your mission to lead them to where you are. So the first thing is cut your expenses and start putting money in the saving account. (laughs) Because it's time to find a new job. Your paycheck can't come from an enterprise whose basic understandings about central issues of the Christian faith are different than your own. You are a time bomb right now because at some point you won't be able to pretend anymore and you'll speak honestly and there will be massive collateral damage and fallout in your church. It's time to move on. It's time to find a faith community that believes as you believe, that follows Christ as you follow Christ. And it's time to do so without condemning the people you're with now. When that happens, you're going to lose relationships. Some people cannot agree to disagree, 
and those relationships can become abusive. For all the wonderful things that are happening in my life, and there are many wonderful things happening in my life, there's a lot of pain because there are some people who are dear to me that I can't talk to anymore because the only thing we can have a conversation about is the way my beliefs have changed. That's all they want to discuss. And so, without holding anything against those people, I move on. I let them serve Christ the way that they understand is best. I hold nothing ill against them, and I say nothing ill about them. But I understand that it is not possible for us to have the relationship we once had. And it's rough. I'm not going to lie. It's rough. But the healthy way to live is with your community, not against it. And if that's not possible, it's time to knock the dust from your sandals and move on. Our last question I got a lot of variations on. Um, And it kind of saddened me a little. And I think you'll understand as I read the question. Hey, Mike, I am a newly engaged man who is struggling with pornography, addiction, and lust. I have been realizing that the way I think has a lot to do with what happens in my life. My question is this. If I fight and fight against lust in my mind, will it affect my sex drive when I get married? I'm not really sure what I'm asking or if I'm asking correctly, but I'm just really confused about this. The way people talk to me makes me think Christianity is just a self-help program. I know this sounds silly, but it's a struggle I'm having a lot lately. I appreciate your content and willingness to speak boldly, and I'm sorry about the confusing way I worded this. I'm learning a lot from you and Michael Gunger. <laughs> if you're listening, Michael, uh, apparently we need to talk about sex more. Okay, let's talk about that. If you fight against lust, will it affect your sex drive? Absolutely. You're fetishizing sex. <laughs> you're training yourself that sex is this irresistible, powerful force of evil, and it's not. Your body has been shaped by millions of years of evolution and adaptation to crave sex. All of your DNA wants to make copies of itself. It's one of your most primal drives. You want to survive, which means you want to breathe, and you want water to drink, and you want food to eat, and you want to stay warm. Why do you want to do those things? So you can have sex and have babies. That's where that comes from. You are a finely tuned sexual machine. And because of that, evaluating potential mates is always on your mind, especially in your teens and 20s. And that's why women's bodies appeal to you so much. And that's why men's bodies appeal so much to women. Side note, we have this tendency in the church to believe that Men have these incredibly powerful sex drives and women, you know, have to do their duty or whatever. Science tells us that's a bunch of bunk. Men and women both have incredibly powerful sex drives. And there's some studies that indicate that women may have more powerful sex drives than men and may even respond more powerfully to visual stimulus than men. And that goes to show you how much social conditioning affects the way that we process our bodies impulses, drives, and desires. So if we're thinking about lust, we're thinking about our sex drive, stop fighting it. 
fighting or wrestling your sex drive, repressing it or trying to pretend it's not there does not work. It fuels fetishes. It fuels addictions. It fuels shame. Pornography consumption is much higher in religious areas than non-religious areas. And that is linked to shame. There's a frightening correlation in some studies between religiosity and sexual addiction. So the first thing you need to do is learn that there's nothing wrong with sex or sexuality. Sex is not dirty. Noticing that women are beautiful is not a problem. Ladies, noticing that men are attractive is not a problem. The problem is when we obsess over women or obsess over men and objectify them in our minds. One of the things that grieves me about the modern sexual ethic, it creates equality between men and women by also objectifying men, not by working against the objectification of women. Men and women are not sexual objects for us to enjoy. People are individuals. And when you approach another human being as that, something like you with thoughts and feelings and an inner monologue, it's easier to not, quote, lust, unquote. Don't tabooize, don't create a taboo out of the opposite sex. There, there's nothing special about a woman's belly button. In other cultures, belly buttons are exposed and no one gets excited, right? The, these are cultural norms. And if you're aware of that, you can train yourself to not be so worked up about it. The problem when we approach sex in an unhealthy way, in an exploitive way, or an addictive way, is we take a good thing and we make it dark. Sex is a problem when we make it unhealthy, exploitive, or addictive. So a few ideas for you to try. One, do cut back on porn. Uh, It's kind of the sex version of a candy bar. It's an empty, quick thrill. It's going to overstimulate you. It's going to like drive your brain crazy. And it's going to also give you unrealistic expectations about what you and an actual partner can perform. Okay? I don't think pornography is a great thing for people to consume frequently, forgetting the potential ethical implications of how it's produced. I'm not going to get into the empowerment versus disempowerment argument. We might do that in another show. But the problem with trying to watch porn less frequently is that it's everywhere and it's really accessible. Anytime you're using the internet, porn's a click away. It's a Google search away. Uh, And I bet a lot of guys and girls listening have URLs memorized so they don't even need Google. Um, So the first thing you got to know about cutting back on porn is going to take time. It's not a quick fix. Uh, Don't get in some like guilt cycle of, you know, if you if you relapse a day that you're you're failing forever. You're a weirdo or definitely don't try to wrestle with the devil or wrestle with sin because porn is exploiting one of your body's most powerful drives. So you're going to need to train yourself over time to be less focused on pornography. Think about training a dog. (laughs) Hitting the dog with a newspaper doesn't work really well. Positive reinforcement and redirection work really well. So offer yourself grace when you mess up. Encourage yourself when you succeed. And when you feel the need to engage in pornography, uh, do something else. Get up and leave the computer. Uh, turn the phone on airplane mode, whatever you got to do to over time train yourself to not be so hooked on pornography. 
Two, it's totally okay to masturbate. I know that's a hot button in the church and people frown on it, but it is actually good for you. It is physiologically beneficial. It helps control your libido by channeling your sex drive in a way that is not destructive. So don't get guilty about masturbation. All the shame is far more toxic than anything in the actual act of masturbation. Obviously, uh, you can become addicted to masturbation. Like we talked about earlier, an orgasm is neurologically somewhat similar to a, a hit on heroin. So you don't want to obsess about them. You don't want to uh, use a box of Kleenex a day. Don't hear me wrong. But it's okay to masturbate. It's okay to talk about masturbation. It's, there's no big deal about masturbation. <laughs> um, and if people really think people shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, I think encouraging masturbation would go a lot farther uh, to achieving that goal than discouraging it. I also want to offer you a little bit of hope. This does get easier as you age. Uh, I'm in my mid uh, to late 30s now. And in addition to looking at women differently than I used to, I don't have the same intense hormonal drive. I, I don't feel the constant need to see pornography every time I have a web browser open. It gets better. And the last thing is learn to delight in your wife, your current fiance. Take all this sexual energy you have and focus it on her. Learn to savor her body. And when you, too, become sexually active, spend a lot of time in foreplay. Uh, women are aroused by foreplay. And I think you'll find that um, a happy wife makes for a more frequent, more exciting sex life that pornography can't compare with anyway. The biggest thing I want to say to you, and if you take anything from this message, is let go of the shame. It won't help correct your behavior. Understand that sex and sexuality are gifts from God. One of the reasons you feel so driven by, quote, lust, unquote, is because you've been told that men are driven by lust. That's a false bill of goods. You can control your actions, your thoughts, and your feelings. And as a fellow Christian, I believe God can help you to do just that. Okay, this has been the longest episode of Ask Science Mike we've ever had. Sorry about that. But, you know, the reason I started this show was so that people could have a forum to know that someone is listening, that someone else has the questions that they have. In my own story, <laughs> my life would be different if I would have known other people had the same questions that I have. But, you know, in an episode like this where we're talking about marijuana and sex and Christianity, I have a lot of fear myself. Um, it's been amazing to me how fast this, this podcast has become popular we had more than 10,000 downloads in one day <laughs> recently, and we've been consistently beating 6,500 downloads a day. And with an audience that large, I'm not sure how many people know me, know what I stand for, how many people are brand new. And honestly, I'm afraid I'm going to put an episode out like this and uh, everyone's going to go away. <laughs> They're going to stop listening. Because, you know, they heard me unrelevant and they think I'm a, you know, a traditional Christian apologist or something. I do want you to know the reason I do this show is because I love God. And it concerns me that people feel like they have to choose between science and following Christ. And I don't believe that. Um, so I know this episode is sort of dove into topics that many people are afraid to discuss. 
but I think the church will get healthier when we are less afraid of discussion. And so I leaned into my own fear and tried to hold myself to a promise that I made to you guys. You are in charge of this show, and I will take it where you lead with your questions. I hope you understand that's the way this episode came to be, and that's the spirit with which it was formed. I actually called several friends today and had a gut check of whether I should even do this episode because we have a ton of great questions um, that are more kind of just science faith, more my normal groove. And I mean great ones, guys. Next week, there's fantastic questions in the pipeline. Uh, if you'd like to contribute a question to Ask Science Mike, you can do that on Twitter, YouTube, or SoundCloud. Simply use the hashtag AskScienceMike. If you can't figure that out, that's okay. You can also record a message and send me a Dropbox link or a SoundCloud link on AskScienceMike.com. There's an Ask Science Mike button and a form you can fill out. You can also use that to fill out questions that you would like to submit anonymously that you don't want people hearing your voice and knowing who you are. I get that. Your secret is safe with me. Ask Science Mike is produced by the wonderful Greg Nordine, and our theme song is by Jeb Bodiford. If you've got a podcast that needs music, Jeb Bodiford's your guy. I'm telling you, people love the Ask Science Mike theme song, but nobody more than I do. Keep your questions coming, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye.